Welcome back to another episode of the Common Sense Finance Podcast. Anthony here, and on this episode, Nick and I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Devin Rafferty, an economics professor at St. Peter's University. Nick and I had a pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rafferty, who was able to discuss modern money theory, and he tried his best to explain it as in basic terms as possible because it is a very drawn out topic if you really get into it. But he was able to do a really good job explaining it to the two of us. He taught us a lot in just the half an hour, 40 minutes we got to speak with him. Overall, it was one of the more informative episodes that Nick and I recorded so far. It covered a completely new topic that the two of us have never touched on before. And we learned a lot. And we know that you would learn a lot, not just only about the economy, but some career advice as well as Dr. Rafferty touches on some of the skills you would need to build upon once graduating from college. So if you want to learn more about the economy, you want to learn about what skills you need to graduate and get a good job after college, this episode's for you. So we hope you listen and enjoy. So welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Common Sense Finance Podcast. On this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rafferty. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. It really means a lot to us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on your podcast to both Anthony and Nick. Uh, I've spoken with a couple students so far, and they really uh, enjoy it. So kudos to you on that. Thank you. We really appreciate it. And we're really looking forward to our conversation today. But I think before we get into any topics that we want to cover, I think it would be helpful for people to get an idea of who you are. So could you provide some insight into your background so that they get a better idea? Sure. Uh, so I'm Dr. Rafferty, Professor Rafferty, whatever, you know, they'll call me Mr. Rafferty. <laughs> um, I'm an associate professor of economics and finance in that department. I am the founding director of the Masters in Finance, uh, Master of Science in Finance, uh, which is an accelerated program as well. And I, you know, we're the only one in the tri-state area with that. It's open to St. Peter's University uh, econ and finance minors. Shameless plug, I know. Um, I grew up in Old Bridge, New Jersey. I am the elder uh, sibling of two. My younger sister, Dana, um, is three and a half years younger than me. She has Down syndrome. And I think that is actually uh, one of the more formative things I would say that happened to me in life because from a young age, I always had to be a, a good teacher, you know, to be able to explain things. And, you know, I students at St. Peter's say I'm a good teacher. I'll take their word for it. Hey, sure, right? Um, and, you know, I think that probably has a lot to do with it. But, it, you know, she's the, you know, other my children, you know, and my wife, you know, the shining star of my life, right? Because it's, you get to see the world through a whole different lens when you interact with, um, you know, special needs children. Um, conversely, my mom uh, was highly pol policy oriented, right? Um, my mom, uh, heavily involved in the PTA, Board of Education. She ultimately ended up becoming the superintendent of uh, Piscataway Township uh, for a while. Now she's retired. So she's kind of like a great um, help with the daycare you know, working, if you will, with my two children. But, uh, you know, having grandma around, stuff like that. Um, but anyway, I'm talking too much. Did you want me to talk about my educational background or just a quick introduction to life? Um, you can talk about your educational background too. I think it ties into some of the topics also. Okay, sure. Um, 
so I, you know, went to public school my entire life and I'm a fairly, you know, I think it helped tremendously because you, you encounter a tremendous amount of diversity when you go to public high school. Um, there, I, I was in Middlesex County, like I said, I was in Old Bridge and, but towards the Southern end of Middlesex County, um, which is you know, predominantly Caucasian, but when you go to public school, you encounter much more diversity than you would encounter uh, if you went to say, you know, Christian Brothers Academy, Lincroft. Um, from there, I went to Drew University, uh, much like St. Peter's, uh, it's a liberal arts, it's a school that emphasizes the liberal arts. Uh, I went there to play lacrosse, but a funny thing happened was I didn't really like hanging out with the lacrosse team that much. Um, they're, you know, they're fun, rah-rah, uh, but, you know, they were all kind of went to like CBA and Lincroft. <laughs> so I instead, um, I kind of had two different realms of my life. I had my academic life and my lacrosse life. Um, and the academic life was much more diverse. Uh, I started off as a political science major. I wanted to be pre-law, um, you know, get a, get a, become a lawyer, something like that. Uh, but then as the more I took political science classes, the more I realized that economics really had a foundation. And what I mean by that is like, uh, here, here's an example. If you were talking about the euro, right, the eurozone, okay, there's a reduction of tariffs. Okay, well, in the political science class, it was like, all right, so apparently this means something, right? There was a reduction of tariffs. Okay, great. What exactly is that? Well, it's a reduction of a tax, an excise tax specifically, on an import or an export. Okay, great. How is that going to impact the economy, right? What is that? So the further I kind of dug, down, the more I understood that I really needed to become an economic, an economics major, just to, you know, understand what was going on, and so I became an economic. I became a double major, right? And as I became a double major, I took a class called Global Political Economy with Ashraf Ishmael was the professor's name. He was from the London School of Economics, and the course it was. I had international political economy with him first, and then we had global organizations. And I completely disagreed with everything he taught, right? His politics, his this, that, the other. But he did what a good professor is supposed to do, at least in my opinion, which was open my eyes to alternative points of view and the need to not just, which is something in my view, we, we do way too much these days, with, you know, if you're not in this political camp or this political camp, you're a ghost to me and I'm never going to see you again, right? Uh, he encouraged you to read the texts of people you disagree with, stuff like that. And okay, you know, so I became an economics major at that point. And, you know, further down the wormhole, I ended up taking history of economic thought with someone named Fidel Kabu. And he was, he got his doctorate from the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He was, well, I'm still friends with him. So you know how this story ends. Uh, he ended up, re I wrote a 30 page paper as like my senior thesis with him and uh, decided after going to his office and stuff the way, you know, some of you students come to my office now, 
that I wanted to become a professor. And what he did, you know, he encouraged me to apply to everything and anything that I wanted, but he really tried to sell me on going to University of Missouri, Kansas City. And I don't regret that for a second, right? I, it was the best decision I ever made, not just academically, uh, but I saw the country. I guess, can do I have two more minutes to talk about that? Of course, yeah, yeah. Elaborate, okay. Yeah. So it, how do I say it? I don't, this isn't a put down, but we're all on the East Coast, right? You know, like, and when we go on vacation, where do we go? We go to the islands, but we don't go to the islands or something. We go to an American hotel in the islands, or if we go to Italy or France or London, right? We stay in the Hyatt, you know? <laughs> we, but then generally in the Northeast, you know, we consider like going to Boston to be like, you know, getting out or something, you know, we're culturized, right? Um, and, you know, I mean, right, it's, where are you going? I'm going to Palm Beach. Everyone in Palm Beach is just everyone in New York, but we just, you know, let's see you down there. When I went to Kansas City, I saw the country. I have this little map. I should go get it, but oh, anyway. Um, I have this little map of all the states that I've been to. And when I was in uh, Kansas City, you know, I went up, down, left, right, you know, et cetera. And I only haven't been to uh, Montana, Idaho, Alaska, Hawaii, right? Uh, Washington and Oregon, just because, you know, I'm in the middle, you're in the middle of the country, you know? So do you want to go snowboarding in the Rockies? Okay, go snowboarding and, you know, you just got to drive across Kansas. You want to go see Tim Duncan? Tim Duncan was in the NBA back then, right? You want to go see him play in San Antonio? Just drive to Texas. And so I got to see a lot of the country and the wonderful diversity we have, but also I think I got an, a pretty acute sense of the politics of this country based upon the different regions that I was always visiting. And, um, you know, driving back and forth between Kansas City and New York, New Jersey, I never went the same way both times. So I dropped down into North Carolina and then come up 95 sometimes, or you'd go through Chicago and Indiana. Um, I think that really was a big formative influence on me because you got to see just how big the world is and how different Americans can be, right? I mean, we're all Americans, but when you have this conversation with somebody who's in Oklahoma City, the pace, the topics, the, you know, their reaction, the listening, it's just a totally different conversation than the one that we would have here on the East Coast. And that was really striking to me, I guess. It made me really appreciate diversity. And that's one of the reasons that I love St. Peter's, right? I have a strong liberal arts background um, and I always emphasize the liberal arts nature of St. Peter's and the diversity is something just you cannot get away from. So I'm really proud of St. Peter's for that. But anyway, sorry, that's that. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I, I agree. Like I think 
you know, I've been exposed to an entirely different, you know, element by coming to a school like St. Peter's just because, like you said, being it's just a diverse campus, diverse community, I think it does provide a lot of benefits that you mentioned. And I think we could transition to the first topic we wanted to cover on the episode. And it's in regards to modern monetary theory. So I've actually read up on it. It's actually been somewhat of a a present topic in the news headlines from what I saw, would you be able to describe it a little bit and define what it actually is? And I don't know, explain how it works. I, I, maybe in, in simpler terms, because it might take a longer time to go in full depth. Yeah, yeah it could, t- it could take quite a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would like to teach a class on it. <laughs> um, so modern money theory, let me, Wow. Which you didn't catch me off guard, but uh, so I guess the listeners should know the first thing is UMKC, University of Missouri, Kansas City, the school that I went to, that is, you know, the premier institution for modern money theory, right? That's like saying I went to Harvard Med, right? If you want to be a neurosurgeon or something, right? Um, So I should have a much quicker answer for you, but okay. So I guess there's two, if we take a step back, right? And, and you're right, Anthony, MMT, right? So modern money theory is MMT, just for the listener, right? So every time I say MMT, I mean modern money theory. But if you Google MMT, that's what's going to come up. Or, you know, did you mean something else, right? You have an incoherent spelling. So MMT uh, has been in the news quite a, a bit recently, right? Um, one of my professors, Stephanie Kelton, she wrote a New York Times bestseller, and she keeps topping Amazon lists too for being like a best-selling author. And I think she's going to come to St. Peter's at some point, right? When, who knows when this germ is finally over? Um, but we'd, we'd like to get her. And then I believe it was the Richmond Fed this morning actually put out a paper on it. Um, and we've been getting papers on modern money theory from, you know, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, Federal Reserve, last uh, five years or so, fairly regularly. Uh, some positive, some negative, but so what is it, right? Enough of me rambling. Okay, at, MMT consists of two different propositions. At one level, it's really just a description of how the macro economy works. That's it. It's just a description. It's describing reality. In my experience, sometimes that description of reality annoys people, but it really is like a don't shoot the messenger type moment because, you know, if you don't like reality, that's fine. But all I'm doing is pointing out, you know, the gray clouds means it's going to rain. Like, you know, deal with it. Okay. The second side of it is okay, now based on this reality, what are the possibilities that we have for bettering the vast majority of human existence, right? That's where it gets controversial because once you give people a wish list, everybody has some sort of a wish, right? Uh, But what we do is we look at, you know, what realistically would have a big impact on the macro economy, and then is that feasible? Okay, so what is modern money theory, okay? 
at its core, it is a description of how the Treasury, the United States Treasury, and the Federal Reserve interact on a daily basis. Okay. We it involves Treasury tax and loan accounts, Fedwire, the interest rate mechanism. We don't have to get into all that nitty-gritty stuff unless you know you'd like to if your listeners want to, you know, get into that. But one of the first things that it shows, or here, you know what? Let me back up. Let me give you an analogy, because I always found this analogy to be great. Okay. Let's say that the Jets, who are now Sam Darnoldless, so I really have no hope because we're going to pick the kid from BYU and whatever. Okay. But let's say the Jets are going up and down the field, because this happens in my dreams, right? Okay. The Jets are whoever the new quarterback's going to be we put up, you know, 75 points on the opposition, okay? When we score another touchdown to get to 82, does the scoreboard operator take points away from the Patriots? No, of course not. I mean, I, believe me, I wish they did, but they don't, okay? Do they borrow points from the Bills game? Again, believe me, I wish they did, but they don't, right? It, all they do is the scoreboard operator uses the computer to mark up the scoreboard, right? Okay. A lot of people find this hard to wrap their heads around, but that's how the federal, the federal government also spends. That's all it is, okay? Um, one thing that I will compliment your generation on, your generation is much more politically in tune. You guys pay attention to politics more than my generation. So I'm very happy about that, right? And my generation pays more attention than the one before. And so like, you know, things are headed in the right direction in my opinion, in terms of that. But if you, if you think about it, that means that if you think about how Congress works, right? Because now we have a split, a split Senate, right? It's 50-50, right? Kamala Harris is the tiebreaker. Joe Biden just put up a $1.9 trillion infrastructure bill, right? We did a 1.9 uh, coronavirus relief. Donald Trump did the, oh, how much was it? Don't remember off the top of my head. 2.2 trillion CARES Act, right? Where did all this money come from? Did we tax the American public without me knowing that I have no money left in order to spend it? No. Did we suddenly borrow $6 trillion from China? Where did it, no, right? What did we do? We literally made just, you know, if you guys can see it, like, you know, tick marks on a computer. That's all money is. And it's really hard for people to wrap their heads around it, but it's just pixels in an Excel spreadsheet. That's all it is. And I'm gonna come back to the pixels in an Excel spreadsheet in one second. But when Congress passes a bill, all that is is it means you need 50 plus one in order to pass it. And as soon as that legislation is passed, what they have done is authorized the Federal Reserve to mark up the Treasury's account. And the Federal Reserve, which is the Central Bank of the United States, marks up the Treasury's account by however much the bill says to do it, and then you go and spend it. And that's it. Now the question is, did that require tax revenue? No. Did it require borrowing from China? No. It required 50 plus one votes. That's it. 
Okay. How this is controversial is beyond me. But what modern money theory shows, okay, is that, and you know, this is when it starts to get into like the, the juicy details, right? Is that your, your taxes, right? Your tax dollars. And it's kind of ironic because now it's April 16th, right? The day after tax day. All the money that we just sent in yesterday, or at least by yesterday, that didn't fund the federal government. It didn't. It just didn't. Okay. Um, all the debt, quote unquote, that we have with China, it's not really debt. I mean, if, if China showed up tomorrow and was like, hey, you owe us $6 trillion, pay up. All right. Well, here's the keyboard, right? Six zero 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 zero. you know, a lot of zeros. Enter. Okay. Goodbye. See you. you know. Okay. Um, Hyman Minsky, who's one of the economists I really uh, revere, had this famous quote that said, anyone can create money. The trick is to get it accepted. Okay. So in other words, like Nick, if I needed a cup of sugar from you in the middle of the night, come running over, knock on your door with my mask on. And I say, hey, can I have a cup of sugar? You give me a cup of sugar. And I write on a piece of a napkin, right? I owe you one cup of sugar. <clears throat> Give it to you. Okay. If you accept that, and then, you know, if you give it to Anthony, that's money, right? If Anthony accepts it in exchange for his sneakers or something, right? That technically is money, right? So then why do we have taxes? You have a tax because what that does is it creates a demand for the currency, okay? I always laugh when people are like, Bitcoin's the wave of the future and crypto is gonna be this. And it's like, dude, slow your roll, okay? First, it's incredibly energy inefficient. But second, I don't know if people notice this, but it really seems like there's a one country, one currency correlation, right? Canada, dollar. Britain, pound, America, dollar, Argentine, peso, Brazilian, real, Japanese. How does this happen? Why don't all these Japanese, or not Japanese, because you know it's a pretty strong currency, but why don't all these Argentines, right, start using some other currency, right? I don't know if you guys know, but Argentina's economy is not in good shape. And to a fair extent, I mean, some are trying to use dollars, but if anyone and everyone in Argentina knows that the economy is bad, why aren't they switching out of this currency? And the answer is because they still have to pay their taxes in dollars, ultimate, it's, it's, sorry, 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 in pesos, right? They still have to sell real goods and services in order to get their hands on pesos. And so what do taxes do? Taxes have an important behavioral function, right? I mean, I don't think we want everybody to be smoking cigarettes, less of all, you know, people under the age of 18. So you tax the heck out of cigarettes. That creates a behavioral dynamic. But does the federal government need that to fund itself? No. I mean, I think Donald Trump and Joe Biden just showed that it's nothing more than, you know, pixels on a computer. Right. Um, if I always give this analogy to my class, right, because a lot of people think banking is this complicated alchemy, right? Banking is very, very easy. All it is is just creditworthiness. That's really all banking is, okay? Are you creditworthy? Are you not? Period, okay? That in and of itself can get complicated, but that's all banking is. 
So let's say that I walk into Bank of America. Look, guys, I invented the cure for coronavirus and the vaccine and AIDS and cancer. And oh, by the way, it will make you stronger than Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. And you can eat. The only thing is you have to eat one pizza a day in order to make sure that it stays active. Right. This is the greatest thing I've ever heard of. So if you're that loan officer, you say, uh, okay, how much are you trying to borrow? I need $7 billion in order to make this operational. Holy smokes, that's a lot of money. So what do you do? You, you have me fill out what's called a pro forma, right? You look at my pro forma and you check it off and credit worthy, okay, it's good credit. And then you send my pill or whatever off to a scientist and the scientist yeah, you know what? It is going to cure cancer. It is going to cure AIDS. It is going to cure Corona. And you just have to eat a pizza. Okay. Turns out it works. Okay. At that point, they're going to give me the loan. Do they, you know, go and get a wheelbarrow of cash for me? No. What they do is they go into an Excel spreadsheet and it's not Excel, it's different software, but you know, okay. They go into that spreadsheet. They type in seven zero 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 enter and they credit my account out of nothing. And then they give me a box with pieces of paper on it that say Bank of America. Those are called checks, right? And then they give me one of these. You can't go too, I have to go quick because you can't have my numbers, right? And that is for the listener who doesn't know, I just showed my debit card, right? And they give you a piece of plastic with you know, a QR code on it that you can use to access your money, okay? Well, why is it so hard to think that the federal government, which is the currency issuer, right? They issue the currency. If they make the dollar, why on earth did they need to get it from you in order to spend it? I make it, right? I mean, imagine if, imagine if all I levy the tax, right? You all owe me 30 Rafferty's. And the first thing you're going to say is, oh my goodness, I owe 30 Rafferty's, right? Or you go to jail or, you know, frankly, you know, and by the way, modern money theory applies to the last 5,000 years. It's not like this is a, a new phenomenon. We're talking about the history of time, right? And so where I'm going with this is, you know, 500 years ago, it's like, well, you owe me 30 Rafferty's or off with your head. And it actually has its origins in Wergeld, or Wergeld, um, which comes from medieval Europe. And we could go back and talk about the Babylonians and the Mesopotamians, but I figure that is a little too esoteric. So in the course of, you know, you owe me 30 Rafferty's, you have to go out and do 30, do work to apparently earn a Rafferty. Maybe you should approach Rafferty. Hey, what do you want? I don't know. Go build a bridge over there or go put a dam up on this lake or go, you know, whatever. Right. At which point you do the work. I said, wow, there is a bridge. And then I pay you in 30 Rafferty's. Let's say I pay you 40 Rafferty's, right? Pay 40 Rafferty's. And now you turn around and you give me the 30 Rafferty's you owe me. And you now have 10 extra. That's called a net injection of wealth. And that's why everybody who freaks out about the national debt, I don't think of that as anything to freak out. I don't see it as debt. I see that as America's net savings. 
because every dollar that the government has put into the economy that they haven't taxed back, that's a savings some, in someone's account. Wish it was in mine, but you know, it's not. So that's the descriptive side of MMT, right? The prescriptive side is, okay, if, you know, if, if the federal government doesn't spend our tax dollars and if we're not borrowing from China, well then what can we do? And suddenly it looks like, well, we can fix our infrastructure. Maybe we can actually provide healthcare to every American, right? Maybe every American who wants a job can have a job. I mean, we could end unemployment. There's a bunch of, we make a bunch of different recommendations for how to you know, end unemployment. Personally, I would take all the unemployment offices and turn them into employment offices, but that's just my preference, right? Um, but one, once you understand that the constraint is not financial, but instead is inflation, you have a whole new ball game in front of you, right? There's this, there's this famous uh, picture I always come back to with President Obama, ex-President Obama. And he always says, you know, Uncle Sam is broke. You go, Uncle Sam can never be broke. Uncle Sam makes the dollar. How could Uncle Sam be broke, right? And I really think, you know, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a super Trumper or a super Bidener. Both of them just showed you that the government could just make money out of thin air, literally. That's how it works. It's pixels on a computer screen. Um, what you want to do with that is up to you, right? Trump wanted to give tax cuts to the wealthiest and to corporations. Okay. Biden wanted to, and yeah, and you know, the CARES Act with the airlines and stuff like that, right? Biden did uh, cash transfer to mostly the middle class and the poor, and now we're looking at infrastructure. Okay, that's fine. That's whoever gets the 50 plus one votes. Right? Um, but once you understand that the financing is not the issue, the world could be your oyster, right? So I guess that's, I could talk much, we could do seven hours on this, but. I honestly would love, I honestly am very interested in this topic. So I think we could keep touching on it a little more. Um, honestly, every question that I had, you kind of answered as I was like thinking of it. So I think that was, that's great on your part. Um, I guess the one question I have right now is I think many people advocate for, I guess, a wealth tax to, I guess, fund a lot of projects. But based on your definition, would that necessarily make any sense on a federal level? Okay, so there's two different levels to look at this, right? The wealth tax. Why do we need a wealth tax, quote unquote, right? If you're Joe Biden, he's saying we need a wealth tax because we have to fund infrastructure, right? Nope, wrong. You don't have, it doesn't fund it, right? You don't need that money. So to Anthony, to your question, right? Do we need the wealth tax for the money? No, not at all. And so whatever we decide to do, you know, politically speaking, do we want to build roads, bridges, you know, hospitals? Um, you guys are in college, right? Do you wanna have, you know, free college, right? 
or reduce tuition, right? Sure, okay. Uh, who wouldn't want that? <laughs> so, um, now, do we need a wealth tax? Frankly, that's up to the voters, right? We live in a democracy, so if, a, if you think we should have a wealth tax, we should have a wealth tax. I'm gonna sound like Bernie Sanders now, I guess. It's just insofar as we may or may not think it is desirable to have a, you know, a, a system of billionaires or something like that, right? Then you would implement the wealth tax, right? If, if you think that Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos should not exist, right? Well, I, I don't mean not exist in terms of like life and death, but their social status, then Uh, then you would implement the wealth tax, right? You take Bezos's fortune away from him. You take, uh, you know, Gates's fortune away from him, right? Although Gates is giving it away, so there's that, right? Uh, which don't hold your breath on. I can't wait to see when Bill Gates gives away the whole thing, right? I mean, <laughs> that last billion you're kind of going to be looking at, like, mm. um, now, having said that, I guess where do I land on it? I think we should have a wealth tax. And I know a lot of students think I'm fairly liberal, but I'm gonna sound strictly conservative here, okay? This is capitalism. It's supposed to be survival of the fittest. I mean, capitalism is all about competition, right? And this is, I, I kind of find it ironic, I guess, because conservatives are all about competition, but they tend to be against the wealth tax, which I don't get, okay? What I mean by this is, if capitalism is about the competition, right? You're not supposed to be able to pass the spoils of war off to your child, right? You're, and insofar as you do do that, right? They're not supposed to be able to just sit back and live off the interest, right? They're supposed to have to put it into the stock, not put stock market, put it into real investments, right? They're supposed to have to put it into industry, enterprise, right? Um, I'm not saying anything controversial, by the way. There's a man named Herbert Spencer. He's the founder of conservatism, basically like modern conservative. He said the same exact thing back in like 1873, 71, something, or around there. It may have been 1885. But Spencer's saying the same thing, okay? And he's the founder of conservatism because he was asked this exact question by Anthony. Right? Well, you know, do we need a wealth tax? And he said, he said, no, he danced around the question, but his whole idea was that capitalism is survival of the fittest, social Darwinism, it's all about competition. And therefore you shouldn't just, you know, pass on, you know, if, if I'm successful, I absolutely want it to go to my children. From an individual perspective, I am loyal to my children till the day I die. From a social perspective, should that happen? No. <laughs> right? So do we need the wealth tax in order to uh, fund the roads and bridges in college? Not at a federal level. Could it work at a state level? Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Phil Murphy, who's the current New Jersey governor, he does need our tax dollars and you know our property tax to fund the schools and like the state of New Jersey does need to tax and borrow, okay? But Washington DC, the federal government does not. 
That's just, that's a fact, right? So do we need a federal wealth tax? Not for the money, but if the voters decide that it's, you know, socially feasible, yeah. And in my opinion, I, you know, I think you should be forced to at least put some skin in the game. Right? I'm no, sorry. I'm, I'm, I just have one more thing to say, right? I mean, I live very close to Rumson, right? Rumson, New Jersey is nothing but old money, right? And I, I, you see these houses and this wealth and all this stuff, right? And none of them earned it. That's old money. They're dad's, 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 dad, you know, earned it. They're just living off of the bond interest. That's not, okay, so you hit the genetic jackpot. Good for you, but that's not capitalism. You're not, you're living off of, you know, I mean, that's essentially socialism for the rich, right? That's not capitalism. And, and I guess that's a great, you know, side to our last question. Whereas, you know, in the current job market for the students that didn't come from old money, what are some tips that you would, you know, some advice you would give students currently looking for a job? Oh, <laughs> you guys ask good questions. Um, okay, looking for a job currently, okay. Probably what I normally, let me preface this by saying that, you know, we're in a different environment with Zoom and Corona and stuff, right? But I have to imagine that the advice I always give is just as pertinent now as it would be then, which so many students, whether St. Peter's is my first full official job, but I've been teaching since 2012. So what's that? Uh, yeah, I have nine years under my belt, right? Um, no, no, it had to be earlier. Maybe it was 2010. Anyway, I always, tell, I always find students saying, you know, I'm gonna just put out the widest net possible, right? I'm gonna apply to so many offers. They make up one letter that's a template and they send it to everybody. And the, the best advice I can give is that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> the first off is really think about what you wanna be. Really think about it. What are you passionate about? And then in terms of, are you passionate about that? What aspect of that are you really more passionate about? Okay. Because that's what you wanna do. Because that is the career path. You wanna find a job in that no matter what. Because at the end of the day, there's, I mean, how many billionaires are there in this country? Like. 70 or something, right? What's the population? 330 million. Odds are not in our favor, right? So the old quotation, find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life, okay? Yeah, there's some days during the advising that I rip what little hair I have left out, right? But I don't feel like I've ever truly worked at St. Peter's, right? I mean, I get to interact with students that I love. I get to do research that I love and I serve on committees with people who do agree with me on that, right? The St. Peter's faculty is wonderful. And so 
I've, you know, I happen to get an income off of it and it's very nice and I, you know, love it, but I'd probably be doing something like this anyway, right? At least in terms of the research and the trying to educate people. Right? So find what you love and that's what you want to go into. It's not, so many people come up like, oh, I want to work for an investment bank. Why? What do you like doing? Well, I really like a low key, a low stress environment. <gasps> Guess what? An investment bank is not for you. <laughs> that's like, that's the last, if you want a low stress environment, investment banking is not the uh, scene. Okay. And so once you find out what you love, really, really scour the internet. Don't look at the titles of jobs, right? Read the descriptions, try to read in between the lines. Job descriptions are written they always have three sentences that matter. That's what they're really looking for. But then the fourth sentence is always somewhat vague. That's the sentence that matters. Because it's like, you know, knowledge of Spanish, a plus. Well, they're looking for somebody who can speak Spanish. That's all it is. So if you don't speak Spanish, don't apply. But also you should know that if knowledge of Spanish is a plus, they want somebody who speaks Spanish, you are going to be bilingual on a daily basis, right? Is that something you're gonna enjoy or not, okay? Now, I would struggle with that. I am not bilingual, right? But if that's something, when, when you first sit down and think, what do I wanna do? I'd really like to be bilingual on a daily basis. Great, then this is something you should look, right? Like if it's a banking job at a foreign bank where most of the clientele are in Latin America excluding Brazil, right? Boom, that's a wonderful, okay? And now what you wanna do is you wanna write a well-crafted letter with plenty of detail that is unique to that position. Why you are the most qualified person for it. And I'll say one more thing about this. Don't ever, ever use the phrase, I think. Always use the word, I believe. Nobody cares what you think, okay? And that's just true, even when you're 50 and I'm only 37, right? But nobody ever cares what you think, okay? But if you truly believe in something, what that's saying is that you will, if you're good at it, you've already worked hard to get there. And if you believe in it, you will work even harder to either remedy the deficiencies that you have, or you will continue to excel up that academic ladder. And that's what they care about. The second thing I would say in terms of your original question, Nick, right? Go out of your way to make someone else's life easier. You'd be amazed what comes back to you, right? If, if I did, so I would like to leave this earth, leaving it in better shape than I've, I was brought into it, right? So every day I try to go out of my way and do like five or six things to make the world a better place for people. You know, it, you don't, don't ask for credit for it. Just don't, just do something nice, right? Whether it's picking up garbage off the ground or, you know, whatever, right? Closing the door behind someone, but just do it. And you'd be amazed just how much it gets noticed or maybe it's good vibes or karma or whatever, but it will come back around. Go out of your way to do something nice for somebody and the doors open up. Okay. And the third is be persistent. <laughs>
no, but no, be genuine, right? There, I know it's hard to do this on a job interview. You know, oh, thank you, sir. You know, you know, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be whatever you want. No, they don't want to hear that because guess what? The last 10 candidates just said the same thing. They want to know, do I want to be working with this person when I'm sick in the dead of January and it's snowing and all I want to do is be with my children in front of a fire, right? Do they want to be with you? So be genuine because six months later, they're going to find out they don't want to be with you. <laughs> and all that did was waste each other's time. Right? So I guess to summarize a rather rambling uh, uh, answer is focus on what you love, be genuine, right? And follow and do what you believe in, right? Now, you know, that doesn't mean like go out and move to LA and try to become the next Guns N' Roses, but you know, within reason, do that. Yeah, I honestly think that's that's great advice. And I think speaking to other faculty members, I think a lot of these, the, a lot of the points you made are mimicked in what they also said. So I think it's a common theme of, amongst uh, the advice given. So I, I, I appreciate that. I also appreciate the time that you spent on this podcast. I think, uh, Nick, do you have any last remarks before we wrap up here? No, no. Just want to say thank you so much, Professor Rafferty. Um, Anthony and I definitely learned a lot and our listeners regarding modern money theory. And we really, you know, if we can have a next opportunity to definitely go into depth with it, you know, at another time, you know, it would be amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we could, you said you can go seven hours. I'm sure I'd be interested in listening to seven hours at the rate we were going here. So I could, I could, I could go, I could go a while. And clearly I like to ramble too. So <laughs> It's not, not a problem for us, though. <laughs> Rambling is the knowledge. Thanks, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You know, I, I thanks. Um, like I like I said, it's an honor that you asked me to be on it. So thank you very much. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Professor. Yes, thank you. We really appreciate it. Nick and I are not certified financial professionals. This podcast is for educational uses only. It should not be used as the basis to buy or sell a security, nor is it the offer to buy or sell a security.